Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Lost Treasures podcast. I'm your host, John Scheel, with my co-host, Adam Means. And we are here to talk about Lost Treasures. It's super exciting, super topical, something that uh, you've probably been watching Oak Island for years if you've tuned into this podcast. And guess what? They never find anything. <laughs> but <laughs> my colleague Adam is definitely finding things. And we're going to talk all about it. We're going to get into it. So, Adam, before we get into that, let's talk a little bit about you and your background. Uh, awesome. Where are you from? What do you do? Thanks, John. Um, I was a personal trainer for about 20 years. Uh, Went to Marietta College for school, um, played basketball, grew up in Iowa, have lived pretty much between Ohio and Iowa quite a bit, but I've been in California, North Carolina, Pittsburgh. Um, yeah, so I've kind of been all over. I adapt to my area. And you were a personal trainer. Yes. But during the pandemic, you told me a story where you needed to make a pivot like we all probably did, and you spent a lot of time looking online at uh, some historical documents and buried treasures, right? Yep. yep. So a lot of it started when the pandemic hit and I had been training people on and off for about 20 years and instantly lost all my clientele in one day. So uh, with that free time, um, I just got into old stories. And so almost anywhere you go to Iowa, Ohio, Indiana, there are stories of people either hiding things or losing things. Um, and the older the area, it seems like the older stuff you find. Well, and that's, that's pretty amazing because I want to point out that my wife's uncle, Greg Hand, who used to be the spokesperson for University of Cincinnati and, uh, now has his own, his own, uh, series of articles and podcasts and probably got a book out or two. Yeah. Uh, he's got an article, uh, that you can find in the Cincinnati magazine from July of 2017 talking about tons of stories of buried treasure right here in Cincinnati, Ohio. And we're recording this podcast in Cincinnati, Ohio, because you stumbled upon a story that led you to Cincinnati. So yes. what story interested you in the Cincinnati area? The story that stuck out to me was the uh, story of Fat Nick. And so a riverboat pirate, his dad was a pirate in the Caribbean. And so this guy was, you know, kind of part of his DNA. And there's three or four different stories between the internet and, and different books that I'd got that pointed to Cincinnati and to Eden Park specifically. I love that. I love everything about it. I love riverboats. I yep. love riverboat pirates. I didn't even know there were such thing as riverboat pirates. And of course, Pirates of the Caribbean. Well, yep. Disney has made a lot of money on just Goonies, that concept. Don't alone. forget about Goonies, That's John. true. And that was probably Goonies. the first thing that, you know, it I love that movie. And who didn't? And Indiana Jones. Oh, my gosh. I, I loved the Goonies. I couldn't believe that they actually, at the end of that, came up with a, a pirate ship. And treasure. Yeah, it was pretty cool. That was it's a classic. I mean, classic it was movie. like, it was the best thing ever, really. Yeah. It's so our time. Anybody, it's, yeah. our, it's our time down exactly. here. <laughs> and I think anybody can relate to that. You know, it's just an intrigue. National Treasures, all these other, you know, spinoffs. And um, yeah, I've, it's been something that I, you know. I've always been interested in, enjoyed. So during the pandemic, you said, the heck with it. I'm hooked. Let's go. Let's do this. Let's yeah. find something. I, I just decided that, you know, I, the general area that I was at, I started looking for tales. And I've been very familiar. I'd worked in Ohio before. I lived here a couple times. And 
went to school down in Marietta. So I was familiar with Ohio. And so it was kind of an easy place to start. And uh, yeah, the Fat Nick story stuck out, but there's others too. Well, it's good you mention others because Greg Hand mentions workmen excavating a new YMCA building on Central Parkway found a pottery crock spilling $2,000 in gold coins when it was shattered by a pick. They uh, found a smaller stash, only $90 in gold pieces, but it was discovered in 1905 by workmen excavating for the Cincinnati Southern Railway below 3rd Street in the West End. And this is from the Cincinnati Post in uh, June of 1905, so uh, quite a while ago, about 100 years ago. Yeah, there's there's plenty of articles. You really just got to look, and uh, it piqued my interest. And so I had the time, and so I just started looking. So when you started looking, did you just say, hey, I'm going to go out and get a metal detector and just start checking things out, or what did you do? Um, I had a metal detector, but I I really kind of— try to approach it on a, like a scientific, uh, instead of just, you know, going out and not having a direction. Um, I pulled a bunch of old maps. So I tried to find as old a maps as I could possibly find of the area and think of it like somebody from the 1800s or where would you put it? I'm not going to put it deep in the ground in water. I'm going to put it at the highest point that I can find. And so when you say it, you're talking about a treasure, like right. Fat Nick's treasure. Right. And if I was going to hide something for, even for myself, I'm definitely not putting it all the, you know, near the water. I'm going to keep it away. And, you know, the, one of the highest points over in Eden Park is like 900 feet above sea level. And so you can see everything. so you're thinking if you're along a river and you're a pirate and you've got a pirate treasure and you know that there are stories of him burying stuff, you're thinking... Yeah. Okay, pirate pulls over, and he doesn't want the river to flood. He wants to be able to find this thing again. Yep. Mm-hmm. So he's going to hike up the hill, and he's going he's gonna to bury this someplace yep. along the hillside. Yes. Mm-hmm. And one of the largest tracts of undeveloped land dating all the way back to the 1850s is a public park. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now, very, very wooded, not easy to get to all the time. Um, you know, part of the places I was going to definitely did not look inhabited. So public park, though, you probably had to get permission to go in there and look around, right? Exactly. And so understanding the laws is probably one of the most important things. Um, I'm not looking for something on a beach and pulling up a quarter, right? I'm looking for something in a public park. And so there are steps that you had to take. And one of the first things I had to do was get a metal detecting permit. Okay. So we also know that the Antiquities Act, right? Yes. Um, 1906. And that prohibits anyone from taking anything out of the ground that would be older than a hundred years. Is that right? Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I kind of knew that a little bit, but I I looked into it a little bit more too. So we're, we're definitely talking about things that are older than a hundred years at this point. And so, you know, you've got a lot of restrictions, uh, but you did get a metal detecting permit. And what did you do? Did you take a metal detector out there? Yep. And you climb the hillside and just start walking around. I I had a general idea, you know, where I was going to go. But yeah, I, figured out my coordinates. And from that, it was parking and walking up the hill. Well, honestly, you couldn't have picked a more beautiful place because Cincinnati is just, uh, it's just a wonderful town. Now oh, 100%. I, I live in Cincinnati. I'm from Cincinnati. So I'm, I'm really Cincinnati centric. So any of you folks out there listening, uh, that want to come visit a really historic town, understand that we were the edge of the, what was called the Northwest territory, uh, early on in America's history and, uh, land, that was given away uh, to soldiers in the Revolutionary War uh, was this was like the wilderness, like the furthest out that they could they could give it 
give it away. And they felt like nobody was out here, nothing but Native Americans and just empty land. So the 1700s, they were given away land from just after the Revolutionary War and tracts of land were being settled at that time. And um, we're talking around that era, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, most of the the stories are going like, you know, 1830s, 1850s, but it it was... um, kind of the time when city of Cincinnati was kind of starting to develop. Now, I want to mention that while you and I have been exploring together this summer, some of these areas, uh, we did stumble upon an archaeological excavation, and hopefully we'll have some of the team on in a later podcast. Yep. Uh, and we discovered uh, on a 2,600-acre plot of land that used to be owned by the Turpin family, uh, there was uh, up to three different villages yep. uh, just in one little area about the size of a football field. Yep. Uh, and we stumbled across uh, an excavation from Ohio State University going on right now where they are pulling up to 20,000 artifacts a summer out of the ground. It's pretty uh, amazing. Unbelievable. Now that right in the backyard too. that it, it literally just a couple miles down the road, yes. uh, right along the, the uh, little Miami river, amazing stuff there. Uh, but we know from talking to the archeologists that they were digging on the site that university of Cincinnati dug in the 1950s and Harvard university dug in the 1850s. Yep. And, uh, so they were doing just what you were doing, which was looking at all the maps, looking at all the things that came before and then using educated guesses, going out and and looking in areas where they knew there were there were settlements, and right. so you kind of followed the path of an archaeologist, even though you were right. looking for lost treasures. Yeah, I kind of kind of created my own little process in it, but I I kind of figured out that there's just a lot we don't know about, and yeah. so that was kind of one of the intriguing things. Like we don't exactly know what happened, you know, hundreds if not thousands of years ago, but the story intrigued me. And so that's where I started. Well, I, I think it's fascinating. And I know that we're going to try and have Greg hand on in a later Definitely. episode as well. He mentions in his Cincinnati article that a good many of these buried hordes came about because people in those days didn't trust banks. They didn't trust banks operating uh, before the, the days before federal deposit insurance. And certainly if it was an ill gotten gain right. from piracy easier to hide oh gosh i mean you wouldn't have any you would you would you'd have to hide it you yes. couldn't put it in yes, a bank definitely you, uh, but banks uh as as i've come to know banks uh didn't have uh they obviously didn't have a, an insurance but they they didn't have a national currency in some cases they had currency that was just for local areas right. uh, so gold and me- precious metals were used far more often for currency back in the day. Yes. And uh, mm-hmm. so we're dealing with a, a rough and tumble era of, of American civilization and American history. And uh, obviously piracy, that led you to exploring this hillside. Yep. Now, when you went out to explore the hillside with a metal detector, were, were you talking about uh, a really expensive metal detector or did did you just start off going to a, a hardware store and picking one up? Great question. The, the the first one I actually got was probably in 2016 and it was something from like Harbor Freight. So like 60 to $70, very low end, not a lot of bells and whistles. Um, what I used out there uh, was one that can discriminate like a mid-level somewhere like six, $700. Um, but I was very familiar with it. And so being able to use the equipment and understand it is, is part of that battle. And the higher technology level you go, the more you got to learn about your equipment. 
Now, how did you get familiar with your equipment? Did Using you- it. I just went out to the different beaches. So Alum Creek Beach or Alum Creek up in uh, right around Columbus area, that park up there, that place allows you to metal detect on the um, beach. And so that's part of, you know, some of the different restrictions per county is you have to understand where you can actually go with a metal detector. And so Eden Park, you can go wherever, as long as you have your metal detecting permit up in Alum Creek Park, you can only go on the beach. And so I just started going out on the beach, finding stuff. And so it was very easy. It's a, not of all of them are extremely complicated to use, but to get to the discrimination levels, you, you kind of got to know your settings and know what you're doing. Okay. So um, when you had to pull the permit, was that hard to do? Easy. All online. Took like five minutes. Really? And just had to keep it on myself and then have my ID when I was out there. And time of that day I was out there uh, last June 10th, um, there wasn't a lot of people around. So I got to spend a lot of time by myself and it's a beautiful area. So that's great. Now, could you see the water from where you were hiking no. around? No, I could not. Um, I started very far just to check out the uh, overlook. And so then I worked my way back to my location. And where that is, is you can't see the water from there, but it's still fairly elevated. So if you were imagining yourself as a pirate, do you think that it would be easy? I'd, I'd hide it in the woods. Yeah. Do you mm-hmm. think somebody would be be able to just sort of pull their boat up to the banks and climb up into the trees? And No, there's no way. I mean, just the amount of land there. You'd really have to use some sort of markers, a tree, a rock or something. Um, the other location that I was at in Eden Park, it was very dense and very hard to get to. So they're, they're going to... If you're imagining yourself as Fat Nick and you're you're offloading your treasure, you're you're thinking it's not near the water, it's yep. up in the hillside. Yep. And 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 this is uh very few people would be able to find it. Yeah. It's just gotcha. a big a big park. I mean, there's a lot going on from the hills to the overlook, but people have been there for a long time, I believe. Well, let's talk about that. Uh so people have been there, but it's not been developed. Correct. When did it when was it made a park? Eighteen fifty nine they purchased the first parcel of land for Eden Park and it was from the Longworth family, which is fairly well known still in Cincinnati. Um but they had a little vineyard up top. So it was called the Garden of Eden. And then uh, I think it was about ten years after that they just dropped the garden part and called it Eden Park. Wow. And it's basically been undeveloped ever yeah. since. Yeah, the there's 1850s. certain you know different things for the utilities for the city, but you know parts where I were, you're, you're looking at like a 45 degree angle, and so there's just a lot of vegetation, a lot of overgrown, a bunch of old trees. So you know the area is fairly old. That's amazing. So, in exploring that park, did you see anything else? Did you ever see a Reds game? I did, but that was about 10, 15 years ago, <laughs> and it was you know. It's a great baseball is great to watch just in person. It's very relaxing. Have you gotten to see the latest? I have not yet. Okay. I'm going right. to though. All right. Well, we're it's gonna, on the agenda, John. We're going to invite all of you <laughs> listeners to a Reds game as well. It's going to be so much fun. We'll have a lost treasures Reds outing. Sounds like a blast. <laughs> so, all right. We're, we're now, we're not talking about your ex exploration of an area and you've got a permit and you're going out there and I'm just trying to get the mindset of, you know, you're, you're exploring, but you're probably not hitting a whole lot. And then what happened? You, you actually came across something, right? Yeah. So I had, you know, the day before you try to, I do it like anything. I just prepare myself, get all my equipment, the necessary things that I can actually take per that metal detecting permit. And then kind of just set out. So I left early in the morning, got down there like eight or nine and 
really just did a little sightseeing first, but then I, you know, got down to it and I took my metal detector out, got everything set. And when I got to the area that I was looking, I got quite a few hits, gold and silver. Oh my goodness. Now, how do you verify that? I mean, great question. Cause so, you can't, you can't dig right. And right. You, you can, you can, but that's, you know, you still have to remember the federal laws. You can't just go out there, find something and take it. Yeah. Um, so I kind of knew the area I was going to. I confirmed a couple different times with my metal detector just as far as I was going to the place where I found the highest tones or I got the highest uh, hit. And so from there, um, I tried to confirm it with a different route. I used something a little bit more efficient. I used an endoscope to kind of see into the ground. And that endoscope, how far did you shove it down in there? So that's a great question. So I, I hit a cavity somewhere around two feet. So 18 to 24 inches somewhere there. And, and the reason I say that is because I felt the space give. It wasn't from solid and then nothing. And that's what it felt like. So it felt like I was drilling through a piece of wood. And then when you get through that wood, it gives a little bit. And so I noticed that was different. And I'd, I'd have some structural engineering experience as far as one of my jobs out here. And we would dig, you know, 18 to 30 inch holes, 20 to you know 25 feet deep if needed. And we'd never encountered a cavity, especially on a, you know, a spot where the, the angle I was at was at least 40 to 45 degrees. And so I just didn't think there could be something man-made down there. But what I hit, like when I started seeing things color wise with that endoscope, I knew I was onto something. And when you were looking through the endoscope, you were seeing colors, a bunch of colors, right angles, uh, stuff that was shiny that I don't think should be there. And that's what I saw. And I was able to keep going through my video and you, you know, you see things on social media, but the amount of depth and detail I can get off my phone of what I'm seeing, um, it led me to my next step. And what was that? Did you bring in another metal detector to to check it out? That's a great question. I actually, right after that day, I, I did about two weeks of law research and then I went to the press. Oh, you went to the press. Yes. Okay. I, th- I thought that there had to be an um, another way to get them to kind of pay attention. Not that I'd reached out a bunch, but I did. Um, and then that kind of got their attention because WCP 9 is actually right down next to Eden Park in Cincinnati. So I reached out to Larry Seward and, um, from there it was, he got a hold of me. I think it was probably about two or three days later. And then on the 22nd, we met, met at the overlook and did my interview there. And after that point, did you bring out any other equipment? Oh yeah. Uh huh. So the next step was really just following the same process, trying to get another confirmation. So I had somebody come out with a, it was for using, it was a metal detector for using underground utilities. Okay. And so we will post the, uh, the channel nine, right? Channel WCPO nine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we'll post the channel nine on the lost treasures website. So yep. people can check that interview out. But when you, when you brought in a more sophisticated metal detector, what did you hear? And what, what did the gentleman say? Um, the nice thing is that I, I recorded almost all these, so we can post something about that, yeah. too, just as far as some of those tones. Let's play it, and then let's talk about it. Sounds good. Go like right over here. I mean, I'm getting enough hits where I think it would learn. 
an excavation of it, but awesome. That sounds incredible. So tell us about those different tones we were hearing. And and we heard him say, I think we're getting enough that warrants an excavation. Yep. And so what they do is looking for you know, underground utilities, pipes, whatever. Um, and that metal detector was a highly discriminating. Um, but I believe most of those tones that you were hearing are gold and silver tones. And the metal... It wasn't picking up aluminum or anything like no, that. That thing, like he took a pop can and put it to the end and didn't make a sound. So it was no aluminum, nothing. It was anything that was there was something a little bit higher of a frequency. So that leads me to look at all of these other stories of, of treasures and, and things that may have been found in. They're all over the place, too. It's it's incredible. I mean, yep. just in our discussion of it alone, looking at. The Enquirer articles from from the 1900s. I'm, I'm seeing articles from 1916 where there's $1,500 in United States money and coins and, and caches of, of, of pennies and yep. uh, all sorts of stuff. Uh, just found going all the way back. There's uh, 1884. There're $1,200 in uh, five, ten, and twenty dollar coins found in. Uh, Sailor Park, Ohio, which is just on the other side of the city. Nice. Uh, and then Monmouth Street in Newport, a box of old coins uh, from 1812 to 1830. Uh, workers were digging up a foundation. Uh, just so much stuff oh, yeah. hidden in in plain sight, practically. The book uh, I had um, that I kind of did a lot of the law research on was uh, two different things, uh, buried in the ground and in the water. And so then it just kind of walks you through different case studies. And that's kind of how I learned, you know, a little bit of this was just looking at things that have already kind of been done. But mine's kind of fallen that area very unique now with where I'm at. Well, it's it's fascinating. And I want to say since you and I have been talking about this, it seems like almost every day. Now, of course, we all know our phones are probably listening to us, but uh, <laughs> almost every day I see, you know, a Danish sword, a, yeah. a Viking sword found in a Danish pond or, yes. a, you know, there's it's just all over the place. There's I, just stuff everywhere. You don't have You don't have enough time probably in a day to see all the stuff that's actually found, but all over Instagram, I mean, coins, there's things, it's a whole, you know, it's a whole group of people that like to do this. And I'm just one of those people. I think it's incredible. It's fascinating. And we're going to, take a pause for some station identification for some some affiliate marketing and we'll be right back in just a moment welcome back ladies and gentlemen welcome back we are right here this is the lost treasures podcast my name's John Scheel. I'm a music lawyer, podcast producer, and working here with my very good friend, Adam Means. And just to recap a little bit, Adam decided that uh, after pivoting careers during the pandemic, he was going to focus a little bit more on some of the things that he really enjoys. And one of those things was uh, discovering lost treasures. He's an avid metal detectorist and uh, went out and found some things on some beaches here and there. And led to some stories that led him to Cincinnati, Ohio, where apparently there's just riches under every corner. So um, <laughs> a lot so, of corners though, John, yeah, a lot of that's corners. True. So here you are in Cincinnati, Ohio, you have not only found something and you've confirmed it with a more high powered metal detector. What did you do next? 
because you've already been on the news talking about it. And mm-hmm. here you are, you're, you've got, you've pulled metal detector permits, but there's a lot more to the legal side of it. And, oh, and yeah. at what point did you say, I need help? This is, this is over my head. I got the best advice from the parks and rec director after my interview. So I sat down, talked with him, showed him some of the stuff. Uh, he was one of the few people that I went out and showed the location uh, to at the same, at that time. Um, but he told me to get a lawyer. And so I started, you know, I shifted my research into looking for a lawyer. Um, and it's very interesting talking to people because it's super hard to believe, but same time, as soon as you send them the video, it becomes very serious. Uh, but Shane Kruler was my lawyer that I reached out to and sat down, talked to him. I talked with his wife first and we've been on this journey together this whole time. Well, full disclosure, I went to law school with Shane and I know him to be a great guy. So we will definitely have to have Shane have a few comments here for the podcast. He's, uh, he's not a very public guy, so I don't know if he, no, he's going to want to be. I don't know if be. he's going to want to do all that. <laughs> it's okay. We'll try and drag him on right, here. Right. Uh, certainly it's fascinating and he's taken on the bulk of the lion's share of the the administrative side of yes. getting all these permits, which it, I'm sure were, were not easy to do. So uh, tell us a little bit about the next steps in the process on, on trying to uncover what you found. Uh, the biggest thing was really the communication between, you know, Shane and the city as he is my you know legal representation, uh, just learning how to follow these steps. And so the next thing was this, you know, piece of paper that's called a right of entry. And it's really just giving, the city is just giving you permission to go down on their land to do uh, some sort of investigation. Uh, it's, you know, there's a whole bunch of different parts of the city that you, you know, deal with, but this was a very specific set now. And so that right of entry was, um, I started looking for an archaeologist to help me confirm this in a different way through ground penetrating radar. And so we we're working through this whole process, which... Luckily, with some of my background, I've dealt with city entities before. So I kind of understood, but it's really just, you know, having the right lawyer to ask the right question. And, you know, Shane was doing that for me. That's that's really excellent. Did ever you feel like you were you were fighting an uphill battle, though, to do further investigations? Tell us about that, because I know sometimes, um, you know, you've got this intention and then you run into an obstacle. Right. Um, So. Great, great question. And a lot of it was I'd reached out to six different entities um, about my project. Um, and, you know, you get a lot of people that say they're going to return your call and they don't. Um, you reach out to people, they sound like they believe you, but they really don't. Uh, but the archaeologist that I went with, Grand Pape, is right out of Cincinnati. And uh, Cinder Miller, like, worked with her pretty much this whole time. And so now we're you know, hopefully going to get ready for the next phase. Well, I think it's really exciting. Um, when you contacted the archaeologists, what did they say that you needed to do next to uh, to to get more information about this right. before you went any further? They they uh they have a pretty good process of like filtering you out, right? And so you have to use the right terminology. Like any profession, you're going to have a certain things that, you know, show these people that you know what you're talking about. And so I had to use that word, the, that right of entry the right way. Uh, but from what Cinder told me, they get calls all the time for people think they find things in their yard. So, you know, she kind of knew. And after I talked to her and we talked for about 20 minutes, like she knew I was serious. And so that's kind of what led to her giving me the proposal for the right of entry. Now, I... 
I've studied a little bit of archaeology in mm-hmm. the past, and and historical archaeology, the the archaeology of the uh, American history, um, you know, they're they're constantly having to go out and do surveys of areas where they're trying to build uh, a subway yep. or they're trying to put a building in some downtown location where there's layers of history that are there yep. and they've got to go in and, and figure out all this stuff. Did she make mention of, of having ever done any excavations in the Eden park area or, yep. or in Cincinnati? So the nice thing was that Cinder Darty been kind of familiar with Eden park in itself. They've done uh, projects and one of the, the paper, the paperwork that we had gotten, it was almost the exact same thing that we needed. And so really all we did was kind of just fill in the blanks. And so that was only a, a six page, you know, right of entry, which most of it was pictures, but it took almost nine weeks to, to get it approved. Oh my gosh. Nine weeks. Yeah. But in the, in the meantime, did you get to talk to Cinder about some of the other work that she oh, yeah. does? And a lot. You're right. A lot of what they actually do is they're locating a lot of underground burials or old houses or stuff like that. This, this started to become a very unique project for her and in, in that it's a little different in what the scope of what she's looking for. Now, when you mention underground burials, that reminds me of when we were talking about the, um, the Turpin farms excavation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, we were talking with Dr. Robert cook from Ohio state university about the excavation of the Turpin farms area. And he indicated that, uh, one of the goals of that project is to possibly repatriate yeah. some native American yeah. graves from, the uh, Miami tribe of Oklahoma who yep. want to put back into the ground some of their sacred remains that were taken from this area. Um, I, do you think that you may have stumbled upon graves or anything like that? I mean, potentially, um, you know, the thing that I'll, I'll go back to, too, is just the metal detector hits. You know, I, I don't know what is actually down there, but at the same time, I know there's something potentially very valuable. Um, but, what Cinder told me too is a lot of what they do is underground burial stuff, locating those. Um, the Plotter's Field one that we kind of based our project on, our paperwork, was that's what they were looking for. And they'd found actually, I think, two to three different ones. Two to three different graves. Yeah. Human mm-hmm. remains. And they're somewhere between like, I think there's three to four feet in the ground. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Wow. And and was that, that was nearby in the in the city. Yes. Area. So that was, um, I think it was still considered in the Eden park area, but it would have been a little on the outskirts, I believe. Okay. Um, but yeah, it was again, not a huge bunch of paperwork, but we already had a base of what to go off of too. Now, have you gotten all of the proper permits to go forward with any further ex- exploration of this area. So we, we'd gotten the right of entry, uh, permit approved. That was on May 5th. I was actually hanging out with you that day, John. And, um, again, kind of a roller coaster day for myself because I'd been working on this for quite a while. Uh, but they approved, uh, that permit for the ground penetrating radar in non-invasive study, um, for Cinder and her, uh, company to do for us. So let's back up just for our listeners. So you went out there with a regular old permit you could get off of the website of mm-hmm. from the Cincinnati Parks. Yep. And you first step. You brought your metal detector, which was a consumer grade metal mm-hmm. detector. Mm-hmm. And then after that, you you kind of jumped the gun a little bit. You went to the news, but then you came back with a higher grade. Yes. Of, so another confirmation from a, a more precise metal detector. And and using the same permitting process. Yes. And mm-hmm. then uh then then you had to 
engage a lawyer. You were told by the parks director, you need a lawyer. You, yes. You got Best get advice one. I got. And from that point on, you were dealing with a lawyer and professionals yep. and permitting and, proposals, like all these, it, you know, I, I can give you a very macro uh, view of it, but micro wise, it was following up with emails, calling people, like almost taking it on like it's my own project. And so part of that was like knowing the right questions, but also you have to have the right team. Like I couldn't get to this point right now if I didn't have the right team of people around me. That sounds like uh, a a pain in the butt and not like excavating a pirate treasure, but also <laughs> sounds very responsible, which I yes. think all the archaeologists in the world will really appreciate. So yes, it's it's great you you did that. It's great you've you've gotten where you are now. Did you actually get Gray and Pape to bring ground penetrating yes. radar? Mm-hmm. So that was May 9th and tenth. So it was a very a busy three days. Is that I came back down to Cincinnati Friday, Monday, and then. I was out here all day, Tuesday and Wednesday. But the reason I did that was just to double check, you know, as part of, I look at this as like project managing. And so I just had to make sure the site and everything was ready for when this team came in. And Seth Green, who came down and did it, um, he came from 13 hours to do the GPR. He drove 13 hours. 13 hours, yeah. To bring the machines. They have a satellite office in Rhode Island. And so he drove all the way from there. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So so I was impressed with that by myself. Now, Describe a ground penetrating radar machine. Okay. It looks like uh it'd be like a big stroller. So that's literally what it looks like or a small lawnmower. And so you have a screen up top, a little, uh, d- depending on the type of antenna you use, uh, you have a different frequency down there. And so what it's really doing is just kind of going through the ground and shooting little, well, I guess, little frequencies down through the ground to see objects. And so, yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. It was a long day, but it went really well. How long did the data take to come back from something like that? That's a great question. I think it was about 10 days. And so, um, you know, I, I told them not to rush. Like when it gets done, it gets done. Um, but after that, like, you know, that my excitement increased based on the conclusion. Now we don't want to give everything away, but we do want to know what did the ground penetrating radar say? And Pretty much said that there was three of four locations that I'd given the archaeologist that there was a potential for man-made activity there. And does it warrant further excavation? 100%. And that was probably the, the last two lines of that whole report where third party is recommending that we do an excavation at the site, at these locations. Oh, my gosh. And so, so I was super excited. I actually read the conclusion before I read the whole thing. <laughs> well, I, I think... You know, we all want to do that. We want to jump to the end. Of course. Uh, but this story is is just fascinating, and it's ongoing. So with that, we're going to direct all of you to our social media and our website. And if you like what you're hearing and you want to know more about this story, definitely subscribe. And we encourage you to to hit the bell, you know, subscribe, and follow along. Tell your friends uh, there's something interesting going on, and we are going to uncover it together on the Lost Treasures podcast. So tune in next time and we'll know just a little bit more about Adam and the quest for possibly Fatnick's treasure in Cincinnati, Ohio. 